Hello and welcome to another episode of Incision UK in conversation with. Today, I'm really excited to be speaking with Dr. Fatou Fauna. She's a global gynecologist, an author, and an all-round international expert on reproductive and maternal health issues. Hello, Dr. Fauna, and thank you for being here today. Hi, Beryl. Thanks for having me. Um, so to start with, could you just tell us a bit about yourself and what you do? So I am an obstetrician gynecologist and an epidemiologist. Uh, you know, so I, I do, I guess, a couple of different things. I, I do clinical work. Uh, you know, uh, here I live currently in Atlanta, Georgia, so I do clinical work just as an OBGYN, taking care of patients, doing surgeries, delivering babies. Um, but I also, for my organization, I also do perinatal quality work. I work uh, on decreasing uh, maternal morbidity and mortality. Uh, and improving the quality of care for pregnant women. Um, I also, you know, you know, most recently I was in Sierra Leone uh, and spent nearly two years as the lead for reproductive and maternal health for the World Health Organization in Sierra Leone. And most of my work was on preventing maternal mortality and, uh, you know, some other reproductive and maternal health work. So I do continue to do a little bit of that. Um, I, I, I continue my work as an advisor to the World Health Organization in Sierra Leone and to the Ministry of Health in Sierra Leone around uh, their maternal death surveillance and response system. Um, you know, I'm, I also I, I write books. I um, I created a puberty party, um, puberty party for boys and girls, and also womanhood and manhood party. And that, and what that is, it's really just a curriculum uh, to give our young our kids, our teenagers, our young men and women, the tools they need uh, to protect their sexual and reproductive health, whether it's through an online course or we actually have in-person puberty parties. So I do a lot of different things. So you're wearing quite a few hats. You do quite a lot of things that you've mentioned. Yes, <laughs> yes I do. Mm -hmm. So um, could you mind talking me through sort of your journey to and through medicine, why you chose to go into medicine, why you chose this particular field, what sort of led you down this path? All right. Uh, you know, so that's a really good question. You know, at a, at a young age, I kind of knew I wanted to be a doctor and, you know, I, I mentioned it to my parents and I think I was like seven, I don't, I don't even remember. And they started calling me Dr. Forna at that <laughs> young age. So I, I didn't have a choice, even if I was joking, I knew I was going to be a doctor. But along the way, you know, Sierra Leone, I grew up in Sierra Leone. Sierra Leone has the highest, at that time, uh, had the highest maternal mortality rate in the world. And I was surrounded by stories of women having babies and dying. So I clearly remember uh, when I was 11, my mom was pregnant and was going to the hospital to have a baby. And I snuck into her car uh, because I was very worried she was going to die. And I felt that if I was in the car and if I was there, somehow I could protect her from dying. So that, that's something that was seared in my memory. My mom did okay. She had my little sister, she's doing well. But I think those experiences, even when I wanted to be a doctor, in my mind, I wanted to be an obstetrician and gynecologist. I didn't know what it was called, mm -hmm. but I knew I wanted to be the 
type of doctor that would keep women safe uh, during pregnancy and after pregnancy. Uh, so when I finished secondary school, at that time, Sierra Leone did not have a medical school. They were in the process of starting a medical school. Uh, you know, so I left the Sierra Leone and moved to the U.S. Uh, I, I moved to, I, I went to live with my aunt who was living there, uh, specifically because I knew I wanted to be a doctor and I wanted to uh, go to medical school and that wasn't available uh, in Sierra Leone at that time. So I went, um, uh, you know, I did my undergraduate uh, studies in the U.S., uh, went to medical school at Duke University, and, you know, that was a pivotal point because uh, Duke had an innovative program where you could do your medicine degree and also get a Master of Public Health. It was a combined degree in four years. So during that time when I got my, I got my master's uh, in maternal and child health, I, you know, I focused a lot on maternal mortality issues. Uh, I, I got to do an internship with the World Health Organization and explore that a little bit more. Uh, and ended up doing a residency in obstetrics and gynecology. Uh, and after OBGYN residency, uh, I knew I wanted to work internationally uh, and, and that public health, uh, I knew that as a clinician, I could take care of one patient or a couple of patients, but as, a, as an epidemiologist, I could take care of populations. Uh, you know, so after residency, I did a, a fellowship in epidemiology at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta. The fellowship is called the Epidemic Intelligence Service. Uh, you know, so I had the opportunity then to work in different countries around the world, mostly in Africa, some in the Caribbean. Uh, I did some work here in the U.S. also, uh, mostly around HIV. Uh, around reproductive health issues. And I ended up staying uh, at um, the CDC for about four years. Before, uh, you, know, you know, when you're doing public health and you're doing clinical work, you always feel the pull to kind of do both. Uh, you know, during my time at the CDC, I was a faculty member, a volunteer faculty member at Emory. So I did some clinical work there. Uh, but at the end of the four years, I decided to move back too clinical, and I, I joined an organization called Kaiser Permanente and became a clinician for the next uh, 10 years. Uh, but what happened was, I, you know, I had that public health background. I had that desire uh, to do more things. So I, I, you know, I went into leadership at that organization. Uh, I ended up becoming the, uh, the chief of women's services. So the chief of my department really you know, bringing in that public health work and working on quality issues, uh, while also, you know, as a volunteer, I, I, I worked with my husband, who's a pediatrician, uh, to start the Mama Pekin Foundation to do some more focused uh, public health work in Sierra Leone. So that kind of has been my journey. Uh, and then, you know, I left Kaiser Permanente and, and moved to Sierra Leone, kind of full circle. Uh, because I wanted to specifically work on maternal mortality prevention uh, in Sierra Leone. Okay. So are you currently based in Sierra Leone at the moment, or are you moving in between? How does that work? Um, well, yeah, so I, after spending the two years in Sierra Leone, I moved back uh, to the U.S., to Atlanta, uh, and I do, so I spend most of my time in Atlanta, 
uh, but I do spend a good number, uh, a por proportion of my time still in Sierra Leone. I do maybe four to six uh, missions a year where I work with the World Health Organization and with the Ministry of Health and work on their mission of death for their and response system. So I do some time in country, I do some remote work, uh, but most of my time now uh, is in the U.S. A bit later on, I'll ask you a bit more about the Mama Pekin Foundation and some of the other projects you've got going on. But I really wanted to ask you, you've done so much work um, all over the world surrounding women's health, maternal reproductive health. Um, from your perspective, what do you think are the barriers to women receiving you know, the adequate care that they need? And what do you suggest would be the ways to circumvent that? You know, I, I think one of the big things we need to do is prioritize women and prioritize the, the lives of women. Uh, you know, I, I can say from my, my work uh, in maternal mortality in different countries, uh, you know, for example, in Sierra Leone, it, it, is, it is relatively common for women to die during pregnancy or after pregnancy. And what happens is it's gotten to a place where, you know, things just move on. People accept and say, you know, this is what happens. The, the husband finds another wife, uh, the, you know, people, family members take care of the baby, and, it, and it's common enough that it's acceptable. And I think we have to have a change where the lives of women are prioritized, their health is prioritized, and resources are put specifically towards keeping women safe, towards making sure that women have access to healthcare, uh, that they have access to quality healthcare, that it's not acceptable uh, for them to die during pregnancy, um, that women, uh, you know, their lives are prioritized when they're not pregnant, before pregnancy, uh, so that they are healthy and they have access to nutrition and they have uh, access to healthcare. So that's a, a big issue that we need to tackle. Another issue is poverty in general. Uh, you know, Poverty and, and the challenges that you have, uh, you know, with the social determinants of health, with housing, with food, uh, you know, those with transportation, those things really affect a woman, a woman's health. Uh, I, you know, so we, we, we need to tackle the, the baseline economic issues. You know, women, uh, you know, you, we need to find ways where, uh, communities have, have access to, you know, entrepreneurship, jobs, things that they can do to make money and raise their families out of poverty. Because when you see some of these health issues, it's because people are poor and they don't have the food that they need. They don't have transportation. They don't have housing. They're struggling, uh, you know, to make it day to day. So our, our government, our communities, have to look at ways to raise our people out of poverty. So I, I think those two issues, poverty issues, the social determinants of health that affect a woman's ability to be healthy and access healthcare, uh, and prioritizing the health of women, realizing that women are important, they contribute to our societies, 
uh, and that their lives are important and need to be protected the same way as we uh, prioritize the, the health of men. Do you find that those barriers are the same in the West and other parts of the world? So, you know, it's, it's funny, there, there are similar issues uh, in the West. Uh, you know, when you talk about maternal mortality, for example, there is a big difference, uh, you know, in mortality. For example, in the U.S., rural women have higher mortality. Black women have three to four times the mortality of white women. When you drill down at those issues, you see that it is, there are issues of poverty, there are issues of access to healthcare, universal healthcare, there are issues of where the social determinants of health uh, come into play, uh, you know, the issue of um, prioritizing women's health, you know, it's only recently that, you know, in the West, especially in the U.S., we've had this big focus on realizing that maternal mortality is a big uh, problem and that we need to focus on it and, and we need to take a look at uh, women's health and things that are affecting women's health and provide the resources. So, so there are there, there, it's amazing how similar things are all over the world. And as you've mentioned, a big part of sort of women accessing care they need is health education and knowing how and when to seek um, the care. And particularly in young women, you've done a lot of that through your writing, your books, and sort of other things that you do. And would you like to tell us a bit more about those projects that you have? Yeah, so, you know, Puberty Party, uh, you know, first of all, I am an author of a book called From Your Doctor to You, What Every Teenage Girl Should Know About Her Body, Sex, STDs, and Contraception. And I wrote that book because growing up, you know, as a, a, a young girl, as a teenager in Sierra Leone in West Africa, you know, parents do not usually talk to their daughters or their sons for that matter about their bodies, about sex. You know, there's this big taboo where I don't know if people feel that if you don't talk about it, then it won't happen. Uh, but I never got the information that I needed to understand my body, to understand, you know, puberty and sex and STDs and contraception. Uh, you know, so as I got older, I, I decided that, that as an obstetrician and a gynecologist, I was going to try my best to make sure the next generation had that uh, information. Also, you realize that when you don't have that information, information, it affects your ability to have a healthy sexual and reproductive uh, uh, life. Uh, you know, a lot of these issues around maternal mortality, teenage pregnancy, uh, you know, women and girls just don't know their bodies and they, they don't know what puts them at risk and they don't have the information to protect their sexual and reproductive health. So I saw that this was a direct link, for example, to maternal mortality, which was an issue I was, uh, that was so important to me. And so I wrote that book. I, I'm also the mother of uh, three daughters and a son. And, uh, you know, in writing that book, and, you know, as my daughters got older, I really, you know, I would I'd give them the book. I wanted them to read it. Uh, but, you know, kids don't necessarily, not all kids want to read and want to read a, a relatively big book. So I, re I realized I had to capture their attention in a different way. And I came up with the idea of the From Your Doctor to You Puberty Party uh, and basically just threw a party, 
you know, for my, I think my older daughter was, was maybe 13 and the other one was 10 at that time. And I, you know, invited their friends, about, you know, 12 or so of their friends, similar ages and their mothers and put the curriculum, the information from my book, I put it into a curriculum to celebrate puberty. And basically had a party with cake and gift baskets and, you know, went through the whole process of this is your body, these are the, this is your anatomy, these are the words that you need to know. I mean, we've done that throughout their lives, but we put it into a format in a, you know, one and a half hour party. We talked about periods. We talked about the different STDs. We talked about delaying sexual debut from, uh, for, uh, from a medical standpoint and from a, a standpoint of protecting your sexual and reproductive health. We talked about what to do when you were ready to have sex, you know, STDs and condoms and things like that. And, you know, initially when I told my daughters we were going to have a party, they were horrified. <laughs> uh, but once we had the party, they had their friends there, we had the other mothers, and we all did this together. They loved it. It was fun. They went through it with their, their friends. They asked the questions they wanted, and, and it was just a wonderful thing. And, and since then, you know, we start, I started having puberty parties. I've had some in the U.S., some more in Sierra Leone. And... Uh, you know, more people asked and they wanted, they were like, well, what about my sons? We want puberty parties for our sons too. Uh, so I collaborated with my husband, who's a pediatrician, to change the curriculum uh, and make it for boys. And older people wanted it. You know, kids, uh, teenagers in college, young women, they wanted it. So we created the womanhood party, which is great for your daughters going off to college. These are the things she needs to know and we included things like online safety, things like consent for sex, things like what to do when you're going out to a club or a party, how to handle alcohol and drugs and how that affects your, your ability to make decisions. So we, we created the womanhood party and the manhood party also. Uh, and also created the, uh, you know, transformed them into online courses because there are many people all over the world who wanted this information and I couldn't be everywhere uh, to throw these parties. So now we have the option of doing the parties or just uh, taking the online course. So it, it, it truly, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, you know, I love talking to young people, giving them, you know, because I, I, I really feel you just need, all we need to do is give them the information and empower them to make the right decisions. They can make the right decisions, they just need all the information. And that's what I think we're doing with puberty parties, manhood parties, and womanhood parties. If I wanted to organize a puberty party, say for my little sister and her friends, how do I go about doing this? You can go to my web website, www.drfatuforna.com, uh, and you'll see a, one of the tabs is reproductive health. Uh, and it, it kind of works you through the process. Uh, you know, so I, I do have a curriculum that's online that I recommend uh, that, you know, people can uh, get this curriculum and they can go through the curriculum, uh, you know, and uh, at the same time, you can create a party around the curriculum. So uh, to throw a party is really getting a group of uh, kids together, similar age, uh, you know, 
you know, I'm able to do puberty parties. So I've done puberty parties for kids in the UK, for example. And we can do, um, you know, an online puberty party. Uh, and what I recommend is that mothers or dads or families make it into a party, have food, have cake, have drinks, and have goodie bags. I think it's important, you know, uh, you know, you can put in the goodie bag what you want. I think, of course, it's important to have pads and tampons, you know, and things that we use to do the practical exercises. But it's important to put in the goodie bag, bag things that, are, that celebrate your daughter or your son, you know, whether it's perfume or lip gloss or lipstick or, you know, I had one of the kids that I did, her, her mom put in a Fitbit. Uh, they put in candy and chocolate. So things uh, to make them understand that this is a celebration. We welcome your growth from girl to uh, woman. We welcome the change for puberty. We, we welcome uh, womanhood. Uh, you know, so I, I think you just need to, to let your kids know that it's it's a welcome change and that you're here to support them. Uh, you know, so go to my website. You'll have the information that you need. I do. I can help uh, parents plan and do puberty parties even remotely. And sometimes I do do them in person too. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I'll fly to different places around the world to do that too. So, uh, but I, I think this is something that you can do in the privacy of your own home. And I'm happy to coach uh, to help you do that. Perfect. Thanks very much. That sounds really good. And that sort of brings us nicely to sort of your other projects um, surrounding maternal health, um, the Mama Picking Foundation in particular, I'm really interested in. So can you tell me a bit about that and the work you do in Sierra Leone? Yes. So uh, I believe it was, yeah, in 2008, um, I you know, we, I, I've always gone back to Sierra Leone, even during medical school, I did a rotation there. I, I, I made sure I, I, you know, kept my connection. My parents are in Sierra Leone, my family is there. And what I, I realized over the years, first of all, I knew we had one of the highest maternal mortality rates in the world. Uh, and myself and my husband, once we became doctors, we would go volunteer in, the, you know, the main maternity hospital, the pediatric hospital, but also in health centers in rural areas. And one of the things that struck me was that, you know, we would go to a health center in a remote location and they would have a de delivery bed that was, you know, very old and tattered and there was nothing on the delivery bed. And women would deliver on that bed and put, you know, a lapa, which is a cloth, uh -uh and have the baby and then get up and I keep moving. And, uh, you know, we, so that was one thing. There were issues around sanitation. Uh, there were also issues where many women would deliver at home. And when we would ask them why, uh, there was a lot of poverty. A lot of women uh, or families live on less than a dollar a day. So women didn't have transportation to come to a health center. Or they were too poor to afford the things that they felt they needed to deliver in a health center. A lapa, a piece of cloth to wrap a baby. So a bucket, simple things that they were embarrassed to say that they were pregnant and they were here to deliver and didn't even have uh, the blanket or cloth uh, to wrap a baby. And as a result, many women delivered at home, assisted by family members, 
And we all know that home deliveries are very high risk because if you if there's a complication, if there's a hemorrhage, if there's a retained placenta, usually a family member cannot help help you. Whereas if you're in a health center, there's skilled personnel that can help you, can transport you to the next level of care if needed. You know, so we talked with women, we talked with uh, clinicians and nurses and midwives about things that were needed and realized uh, that we needed to do something. So we, we created the Mama Picking Foundation, uh, you know, to help support the hospitals and the health centers. And one of the things we developed was a simple delivery bucket. Uh, you know, when you deliver in the West, when I had my babies in the U.S., you'd get like a little kit that had, you know, brush for the baby's hair, little outfit for the baby, shampoo, things like that. And it was small, it was a token. I didn't really need it, but it made me feel good, right? So we decided to create a mama picking delivery bucket that had the essentials that women needed. It was a bucket, a lapa or a piece of cloth or blanket to wrap the baby, a piece of soap uh, to wash the baby, and very importantly, a, a, a piece uh, of a plastic sheet to put over the delivery surface, whether it was the delivery bed, whether uh, it was another delivery surface, we felt it was important uh, for infection prevention and control to put an impermeable surface over the bed so that the mother can have a clean surface for delivery, something that would decrease her risk of infection and the baby's risk of infection. So we package all that, put that in a bucket, and every woman who delivered in, we partnered with the, the health facilities, the government health facilities. Uh, you know, so we, right now we support about six uh, government health facilities. And every single woman who delivers in those facilities gets a delivery bucket. A delivery bucket costs about $7 each. Uh, we also pay transportation uh, for women who need it uh, to get transported. Supported, uh, for, to the health center for delivery if they're in labor. So women will use, if they're in labor, they'll get a motorcycle ambulance that costs about $1. And in those health facilities, they would rest assured that once they get to the facility, we use um, phone credits, uh, mobile phone uh, uh, credits, we could pay, we would pay for that transportation. Once we put this in place, we realized that for those health centers that we supported, they would double or triple their numbers of deliveries. So all of those women that used to deliver at home in the surrounding facilities wouldn't have come to the health center to deliver. So, uh, you know, we were very excited uh, about that. We, we were able to decrease uh, home deliveries and uh, increase, improve the quality of care because women were delivering in health centers where it was safer. You know, you mentioned um, sort of you kept going between Sierra Leone and America when you were training to keep that connection. And I'm really glad you mm -hmm. said that because I was going to ask, have there, were there any sort of challenges um, setting it up, especially as you were from Sierra Leone and then trained in the U.S. and going back? Were there any gaps that needed to be bridged or any unforeseen challenges at all? Yeah, so, you know, I learned a lot. Uh, going back and forth. Um, you know, I, I, I can truly say that the clinicians in Sierra Leone are some of the most skilled, uh, you know, because uh, Sierra Leone has uh, around 300 doctors for 
a population of 7 million. So some of the lowest uh, doctor to patient ratios in the world. And so what happened is these uh, doctors and the nurses, the midwives, they're very skilled. Uh, the, the doctors, for example, you might have only one or two doctors in a district hospital and they treat everything. They can do C-sections, they can do hernia surgeries, they do pediatrics, they treat TB. So very well-rounded doctors who know how to make do with limited resources. So for me, going back and forth, I learned, uh, you know, how to treat different things with uh, limited resources. I learned to respect, um, you know, doctors that work in different places. And, you, you know, I realized that in the U.S., I'm a OBGYN. I, I have this narrow practice and this is what I do. Uh, but when we would go to Sierra Leone, I would have to, you know, remember all of the other things I, I learned. We do do medical missions where we exchange ideas because I, I believe missions are you don't just go in and treat people and, and move out. We exchange ideas where we learn from the doctors on the ground, they learn from us. Uh, and so I had to pull on all those skills to still remember how to treat, you know, diabetes and hypertension and, and treat men and, you know, doing, the, uh, you know, IND of abscesses. And I realized that as a doctor, I really do have all those skills. I, I just have to um, call on them and use them more when I'm in a d different country. So I, I think the biggest thing I learned was being more versatile, learning how to um, provide care for patients uh, and to provide what they need uh, uh, in their particular setting. Um, your foundation tangibly does the work to increase those surgical outcomes and things we talk about a lot in the global surgery community. So it's really nice to see that. One more thing I wanted to ask, centering around um, women in healthcare, women in surgery, women in medicine, there's a lot now about barriers to women training and advancing in the profession and sort of the challenges women specifically face in training. And I wanted to ask if there were any challenges you faced during your training or afterwards in your work that you felt were specifically because of your gender or that you felt that gender sort of contributed to and how did you navigate those if there were any at all? You know, that's an excellent question. You know, I think first of all, as a woman in medicine and, and for young women coming up in medicine, you just have to understand and realize that you can excel and you can get to the top and be the best that you can be in whatever career you choose or whatever area you choose. You know, so for myself, I've been able to work both in public health and medicine. I've been able to become chief of my department. I've been able to work in uh, the nonprofit area and, and have a nonprofit foundation. Uh, so just to reassure young women that you are needed, you can do it and you can do well as a woman. Uh, one of the important things that I learned is that yes, you can do it all. You might not be able to do it all at the same time and that is okay. That's the journey of life and that's the beauty of life. I'll use an example. So uh, after residency, you know, I got married uh, immediately, you know, at the end of residency, like the last week of residency, you know, and had a baby like a year later. Uh, and 
you know, I, I, I was at the Centers for Disease Control. I enjoyed my job as an epidemiologist. I traveled all over the world. Uh, and, you know, I had a little bit of a challenge when I was pregnant or when I was breastfeeding because I wanted to breastfeed my babies and I breastfed all of my babies a year at, at a time. So I was able to be a doctor and still do all those things. But I had to change what I did. Um, you know, I remember my daughter was maybe three years old or so, uh, and when they would ask her where was mommy, she would say, mommy's on a plane in Africa. <laughs> and, I, and really because I traveled a lot, I did a lot of international work, and part of the reason why I decided to leave uh, the CDC and leave my work as an epidemiologist and move back to clinical work is because I was having children and I realized that for that period of time, I needed to stay put. I needed to not travel as much as I was doing before. So I transitioned to a career as a clinician where yes, I would take calls, but I was always home. And I did that for a few years. And now that my kids are older and they can take care of themselves, I am now able to, you know, I went back to this career where I did more international work and traveled a lot. Uh, so what I learned was, yes, I, I wanted this job and this career as a global gynecologist and epidemiologist, uh, but I had to do different things in different phases of my life. And I had to recognize that as a woman and as a mother, there are certain things that I prioritize at different times, and I had to prioritize my having children and breastfeeding them and raising them when they were younger. And I did that by just switching my career off a little bit and staying at home when they were younger. And now that they're older, I am able to go back and travel more. So you can do it all, but not all at the same time. And it's okay. <laughs> Thanks so much for speaking with me. It's been a pleasure having you on. Thank you. No, it was a pleasure talking with you. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm very happy to see the kind of work that you guys are doing with incision. Uh, you know, we need to encourage young women uh, to go into surgical careers. We need to encourage more people, men and women, to go into surgical careers because uh, working around the world in Sierra Leone, for example, we have uh, a 3% cesarean section rate. We need much more cesarean sections. Uh, we need more access to C-sections, to anesthesia, uh, to general surgery, and we need our doctors to provide that access. So thank you for that work that you're doing uh, to encourage our young doctors to pursue these careers. Thank you.